Good to see you all. We have a change for a dollar envelope today. If you don't know what change for a dollar is, we have a bucket there in the back. And if you have an extra dollar, we ask you to toss a, toss a buck in that bucket as you go out. We gather those dollars together and we uh, combine them into $50 increments. We give them to you to use to bless somebody with no strings attached. And so I think we're up to, we've got to be, we've got to, I think we've probably given away 60 of these things now. We're probably up to $3,000 of this thing. But it's pretty cool. Well, today it is Tony Altamir. You're not Tony. There you go. All right. And Tony had a really cool testimony last time, so I'm excited to see what Tony does with his. Good stuff. Anyway, well, good morning. Um, Bruce finished up the series that we were doing on First John last week by giving us a great sermon on sin. If you remember that, if you were here, and he had you write some things down. He had us write down that uh, if you remember, sin is lethal, and we should avoid it like the plague. Then he also had us write down that sin is not the problem and that Jesus is not afraid of sin and it doesn't keep him from us. And that as Christians, we have a new nature that doesn't have to be slave to sin. We can walk in the light. Uh, Some good stuff. So today I want to follow up that sermon by talking about a sin that by, by holding on to, by carrying with you, will kill your joy and will steal your destiny. And that is unforgiveness. Uh, Forgiveness is one, or being able to forgive, is one of the most important characteristics of Christians. And maybe you're going, oh man, you know, why do you have to, why do you have to talk about forgiveness? That's, that's boring. Because, here's why, because there are people out there who relationally owe you. Everybody here, there are people who relationally owe you. They owe you because of how they treated you. You might, you might hold that over them, or you might even uh, just kind of keep it inside, just hold it against them, but I would bet that there is probably someone you could forgive he- today. There's probably somebody in your life that you could forgive. So so we're going to read, and we're going to be out of Luke 17 today, 17, 3 through 10. If you want to go there, and we'll get into it. Luke 17, 3 through 10 says, and we'll have it up on the screen too. It says, so watch yourself. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you and say, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I drink, while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So here you have Jesus. This is, this is red letter stuff talking about forgiveness. And you notice that when Jesus starts talking about forgiveness in verse 4, he says, if your brother or sister uh, sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, to forgive them. To which his disciples say in verse 5, increase our faith. Which is another way of saying, uh-oh, we could never do that. Because look at what's happening here. Jesus didn't say to come 
come, if they come twice in a day or nine times in a day, he said seven times in a day. The number seven, as you know probably, was a, was symbolic to the ancient Jewish people. It was a number that meant, means completeness or fullness or perfection. No more possible. All right, so there was a saying in the middle, middle, uh, ancient Middle East when someone would invite you to a feast, they would say, may you eat seven fish. All right, they weren't literally saying, I want you to eat seven fish. They were saying, may you fill up. May you be complete in your fullness. Right? May you eat until you can have no more. So seven is the perfect number, complete. So here's what he's saying, and it's probably worse than you think. When he says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, he is saying if a person would wrong you as completely and as fully as, a person, as any person could wrong another per- human being, Jesus says, if, if you're my disciple and someone wrongs you like that, you forgive them. So it's no wonder that the disciple said, increase our faith. Which is a nice way of saying, that's impossible. You're going to have to miraculously increase our faith because that's impossible. So this is a huge challenge. One of the hardest things Jesus calls us to as Christians, I think. But there's a little phrase here, and it almost goes by unnoticed, that I think is the key. Uh, notice in verse 3, he says, right at the beginning, he says, So watch yourself. If your, brother or sister, if your brother or sister sins against you even seven times, if someone hurts you or harms you, what do you do? Watch yourself. Watch yourself closely. See that that's not usually what we like to do, is it? If someone wrongs us, we like to pay a great deal of attention to that person. Why did you do that? What is wrong with you? Right? I want to burn your house down. Jesus says immediately when someone wrongs you, you should pay a lot of attention to your own self and your own heart. Why? Because Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root or root of bitterness grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Resentment. Unforgiveness will lead or will, will let a root of bitterness grow in your heart. Have you ever met anyone with a root of bitterness? You can, you can notice it pretty quickly because it shows up in so many parts of their lives, right? Bitterness makes you cynical and unkind and, and selfish and entitled. Anger will always tell you it's not anger. Anger will always say, I just want justice. You know, anger will tell you, I just want truth. If you keep anger, if you hold on to anger, it will defile you. It will pollute you. It will spoil you. Nelson Mandela has a quote. He said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. It only hurts you, right? Let me give you kind of a quick little word study. Uh, four English words all derive from the same old English Anglo-Saxon root, all right? So you have these four words, wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. They all, they all come from the same root word. So what does, does wrath mean, class? The answer is that it's a word that means kind of an older word for vengeful anger. Okay? So if you, if you go to the word wreath, what's a wreath? A wreath is a set of branches or flowers that, or whatever that has been twisted into a shape. What's the word writhe mean or writhe? It means to twist and contort. Now you begin to realize wrath isn't just being angry, but to be twisted and distorted by anger. What's the word wraith mean? This is probably a word that we're least familiar with. It's an old word for a ghost and a particular kind of ghost. 
Uh, a wraith was a ghost who had been wronged and after death is doomed to relive what the person had done to it. They have to haunt the area and they're restless for eternity. That's how the story goes. Their eternity and their future are completely controlled by their past. When you stay angry at people, when you stay mad at them, when you hold a grudge, when you stay resentful, when you don't forgive, you will be distorted and twisted and haunted by your anger. You'll become a less joyful person. You'll become a person who's afraid of trusting other people. You'll become a hard person. So watch yourself. If someone wrongs you, high alert. Watch your heart. And this is especially difficult in a culture like ours. We have an uphill battle because, number one, our culture believes that feelings are the most important thing. It means that people say, well, if I'm mad at somebody, I can't forgive them because I'm still angry at them. You know, I can't do anything about that. Actually, yes, you can. According to the Bible, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. It's practiced before it's felt. Corey Ten Boom, uh, you, may, you probably have heard of her, but she was a prisoner of a German concentration camp and, and once came face-to-face with one of the Nazi guards that watched over her there, and she, he asked her for her forgiveness. And her sister had died in the concentration camp and a bunch of horrible things had happened to her. And she was able to forgive him. And she wrote about it later and said, Forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. So forgiveness is given before it's felt. Also, uphill battle number two, we're a competitive culture. In the economics of kind of American social dealings, being offended is considered currency. Being offended is a way of being able to put yourself above someone and look down on them. So it's hard for us to give up our currency. It is difficult for us to let go of this offense that gives us the upper hand. Right? So watch yourself, because this is the air we breathe. So how in the world do we do it? So to start, let's go practically. How do we do this? <clears throat> there are three things if you want to write them down. I know that I'm hard to keep notes on if that's your sort of thing. Um, but Bruce was all organized and had you writing stuff down last week. It was inspiring. So I want to make an effort to have a, a semblance of an outline, all right? That'll probably go out the window next week. But this week, a gift to you note-takers, right? Three things you have to do to forgive. Uh, the first thing you must do if you want to forgive somebody is you must refuse to focus on the differences you have with the wrongdoer and instead identify with them. Identify with them. If someone wrongs us, the very first thing we tend to do is emphasize the differences. If you want to forgive somebody, you must stress what you have in common, first and foremost. The first is that you have to remember you're both sinners. Right? It is impossible to resent somebody unless you feel a little bit superior to them. It's If someone wronged you and you're really mad, it's because inside you're saying, I would never do anything like that. Actually, you might do something like that. You probably have done something like that. To stay angry is to basically assume you have some higher nature or something. You must remind yourself you're both sinners and you also that you're both human beings. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God. So don't take that name tag of sinner off yourself and don't take that name tag of, of human or person off that person that wronged you. You know what I'm saying? Martin Luther King Jr. said, We must develop 
and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Every human being is a rich, complex being of great dignity and worth. But that's not how we feel when someone wrongs us. What we do is we immediately reduce them to what they've done. Right? For example, if someone has lied to you, what, what do we do? We might say, oh, that person, that person's just a liar. But if you get caught in a lie, you say, well, that was wrong, but it's, it's complicated. You know? All right, so you're a multidimensional human being. That person's a liar. You're a human being, and that person is a cartoon villain. You've removed that person from the community of humans, and you've removed yourself from the community of sinners. So that's the first thing. The first thing is identify with him or her. The second thing you must do is you have to very specifically, inwardly surrender your right to repayment and pay the debt yourself. You must inwardly surrender the right to repayment and pay the debt yourself. The word Jesus uses in this passage for forgive. Um, there's a number of words that could be used, but this, he uses a very, very specific word that means to basically release a person from a financial debt. So if you've let, you lent a person you know, a couple thousand dollars and that person owes you and you say, you know, they can't pay it back or whatever, and you say, I forgive you, what happens to that thousands of dollars? You eat it, right? If that person doesn't pay you, you have to absorb it. The debt doesn't just go away. It doesn't just disappear into the air. Either you pay it or the other person pays it. You can only forgive if inwardly you forgo seeking repayment. Most wrongs are not financial wrongs, right? People don't usually rob you of money. That does happen. But I think more commonly, they rob you of happiness. They rob you of reputation. They rob you of opportunity. They rob you of joy in some way. So, so what does it mean to make the person pay? The answer is they, they, made, you, they made you unhappy. You're going to make them unhappy. Right? That's how they pay. They made you hurt. I want them to be hurt. There are three, three ways we do this. One is to directly try to hurt them. You do things to make their life worse, or you just go and you tell them off, just make them feel your wrath. The other way to hurt them and to get repayment is by ruining their reputation. Gossip about them. Criticize them. The third way, and most basic way, is not to do anything outwardly, but inwardly you root against them. You remind yourselves of what they did, and you nurture that. You remind yourselves, and you replay the video of it every so often in your mind to stay angry. You root against them, and every time you hear something goes wrong in your life, you go, yes, their furnace broke. I checked them out on Facebook, and their life doesn't seem to be going as well as mine. Yeah? Like, never mind. Never mind. If I, if I said every ridiculous thing that came into my head up here, I'd... Anyway. Um, what's happening... What's happening every time you hurt them directly or indirectly or even root against them is you feel good because you feel like the debt is being paid. Right? You're being twisted. You're being contorted. But in the short run, you feel good because it feels like, hey, I'm getting repayment. In the long run, the root of bitterness has come into your life, and it's going to suck out your joy. 
It's going to make you a harder person. There's a guy by the name of Dan Hamilton. He wrote a little book on forgiveness. Basically, he goes through these three same things. Um, Dan was engaged to a girl, and she broke up with him right before they were about to be married, rejected him, and he was furious at her. And he knew there were all sorts of ways he could make her feel badly. When he saw her, he could act in a way that hurt her. He could talk her down to other people. Inside, he could root against her. But he realized that if instead he didn't do that, if every time he had the chance to get repayment, he refused, he knew that it would hurt, it would cost, because all generosity is like that. This is relational generosity. If you really give generously, it's going to hurt. To give enough of your money away hurts, right? Generously, that's generosity. Forgiveness, if it's really generous, it hurts. He says in his book, Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but that was done in small sums over a year. Whenever I spoke with her and refrained from rehashing the past, done when I had to renounce jealousy and self-pity, done when I praised her and spoke of her value, though I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never saw them. He's saying that every time he refrained, every time he refused to get repayment, he was paying it, and it hurt. But, in the long run, he got freedom. And forgiveness is, I think, almost always a process. Forgiveness may take years for some, and that's okay. If today you feel like you want to kill that person that hurt you a little bit less than you did yesterday, hallelujah, you're on the right path. Keep going. And there will be times when you think that maybe you have forgiven and then something happens and those feelings rise up again. Yeah, forgiveness is an intentional process of making those payments yourself instead of making that other person pay. And that might take a while. That's all right, but it leads to freedom. So, So maybe you're going, all right, so forgiveness is pretending like it didn't happen or just excusing it then. Is that what you're saying? No, forgiveness is the ultimate act of acknowledging that it happened. Forgiveness does not excuse anything. Forgiveness is acknowledging it and paying the price to let go of it and trust that God will sort it out. This brings us to the third thing we must do to forgive. We must want good for the wrongdoer. Just because you're present, you're not, you know, you're not presently punching them in the nose doesn't mean you've forgiven them. I don't think that it's enough to say, well, I will refrain from trying to hurt them. You have to get to the place where you say, I want their good. I want them to thrive. I want them to flourish. As Christians, you are to be the ones who, you're to be the one who nurtures and builds. Be the one who has an understanding and forgiving heart. Be the one who looks for the best in people. In your process of forgiving, you have to get to the place where you can pray for their, your wrongdoers' wholeness and good. And so, so maybe you're like, okay, you've given me the how-to. Step one, step two, step three. I wrote it down, but I'm still back in verse five. Increase my faith. Right? Maybe you're saying, I feel just like the disciples. I can't do it. How in the world do you do that? Fortunately for us, Jesus has given us a very full answer because everything he says after verse 5 is a response to the disciples saying, we don't have the power to do this. So he answers them in verse 7. 
he starts. Jesus says, suppose you had these household servants. You were the master of the house. You had these household servants. They were, they were all plowing and looking after the sheep. At the end of the day, would you say, quit in time. You're off duty now. Come and eat. Would you at the end of the day thank them and say, oh, thank you. That was so wonderful what you did and how you took care of the sheep and all that. Jesus says to his hearers, that would be inappropriate and strange. Okay, so what he's talking about. What's he talking about here? Uh, a little background. The, these household servants are not really slaves in the way that you and I think of slavery. They were not people who had been, been bought and sold and were slaves for life and all that sort of thing. Um, on the other hand, they, they were not really employees either. In those days, if you fell into debt and you owed more money than you could pay, uh, there was no bankruptcy court. So only two things could happen. One is they could put you in jail. You can actually see that in the parable of the unmerciful servant when one guy is thrown into prison for a debt he couldn't, that he owed that he couldn't pay for. Uh, you could just be put in jail to rot. If your family didn't pay your debt for you because you couldn't because you were in jail, you would die there. The other option was you could go and work for the creditor and you would work off your debt. That might be a year. It might be two years. The Bible actually limited it. Right? You couldn't be an indentured servant for more than seven years. Basically, this was your way of being able to work off the debt instead of going to prison. In that case, at the end of the day, you don't ever really knock off work. Why? Because you're never off duty until your debt is paid. Also, you would never expect the creditor, the master of the house, to say, thank you so much, you helped me so much. Because actually, it's the other way around. The creditor allowing you to work for him to pay off a debt. You're not going to prison. You're going to be able to pay off that debt. And, and so he's doing a good thing for you. So notice at the beginning, he asked the listener to imagine themselves as a master. And Jesus is amazing. He, uh, you should just read the Bible. Kind of going to put yourself there in the shoes of the disciples listening to Jesus. He's going, suppose you're a master. Totally luring them in, right? Because they're going, okay. I can see that. I can see that. I could totally be a master. I'd be an amazing master. And Jesus goes, wouldn't it be strange for the servants to demand thanks from you guys? They're masters, especially since the masters are giving you guys, the masters are giving an opportunity to work off their debt. And they're going, yeah, I wouldn't thank my servant. I'm a master. And then at the very end, verse 10, he says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should simply say, we're only doing our duty. He flips it on him, on us. He goes, you, you like to think of yourselves as masters, but you're really a servant. He says, as servants, you should simply say, we're only doing our duty. So what's going on? Jesus is telling this parable in response to this discussion on forgiveness. Right? What he's saying is, when you refuse to forgive, you're not remembering who you are. You're a servant acting like a master. You owe God everything. It's, it is all a gift. Life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Breath is a gift. He created you. He sustains you. Every minute of the day, every minute of the day he holds your molecules together. You owe him everything. Therefore, he's the king. You're the servant. When you turn to someone else and say, I'm not going to forgive that person for what they did to me, what you're doing is you're a servant acting like a king. You're sitting in the judge's seat. You're saying, this person deserves that. 
How do you know what that person deserves? Do you know what they've went through? Do you know what has happened in their life? How do you know what they deserve for what they did? And keep in mind, hurting people often hurt other people as a result of their own pain. If somebody is rude and inconsiderate, you can almost be certain that they have some unresolved issues inside. They have some major problems, anger, resentment themselves, or some heartache that they're trying to cope with or overcome. The last thing they need is for you to make matters worse by responding angrily. How do you know that if you were in their circumstances, you wouldn't have done the same or worse than what they did? That's what Jesus is saying. And then he uses a metaphor. He says, if you, have, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, here's what he's saying. If you have even a tiny bit of an understanding that you're a sinner saved by grace, if you understand the gospel, you'll be able to forgive. You'll never be, truly for, uh, never be a truly forgiving person until you see him going to the cross to suffer for you. You'll never be able to forgive other people their tiny little debts toward you until you see him dying on the cross to pay your great debt. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. You can't stop putting yourself in the judgment seat till you see the real judge of all the universe getting out of the judgment seat and coming to us to lay down his life. He is the judge who became judged for us. How, how then can you take a judgment seat on anybody else? Jesus says if you understand the gospel, just a grain of a mustard seed of the gospel, it will be enough to help you forgive. When you see, I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace only because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, then he becomes your self-worth. He becomes the source of your love. People can wrong you. It'll be hard. It'll be difficult. But in the end, they can't touch you because we find our identity in him. We are accepted and more loved than we can fathom by the Lord. And we forgive because we've been forgiven. So we watch ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in a culture where people defend their self-esteem at all costs, and they don't know how to say, I was wrong. They don't know how to forgive. But Jesus, I pray that we become more and more equipped to love one another, to repent, to, to forgive, to become, to become people who image your Son, reflect the beauty of your Son to all around us, Lord. So we pray this in your name. Amen. The ministry team wants to come forward. Anything? You good? The ministry team wants to come forward. Um, if you want prayer, if you have some unforgiveness in your heart, it would be a great time to come up and just get prayed for and get rid of that stuff. Amen. Amen. If, you, if you'd like to stay and get prayer, stick around. If you'd like to go, you're dismissed. Amen. Thanks.